Father, we love you, Lord. Thank you for sending Jesus. Uh, Thank you that you were willing that he would take the wickedness, the depravity, uh, the total, uh, the totality of our sin, Lord, and he'd take it upon himself and satisfy your wrath, uh, drink the whole cup of your wrath. I mean, God, thank you. We're so grateful. Lord, I pray that if there's any today that do not know that Christ is their Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, for believers who have received Christ as Savior and their lives exist to further the kingdoms of this world. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of repentance. Lord, we're in this world, but we're not of it. Lord, help us to see that. Help us to recognize the opportunity that we have to, as ambassadors of Christ, to be a part of building your kingdom. And so, Lord, help us this morning to receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, in Genesis chapter 10, we are seeing the families that make up the people groups, the nations, the kingdoms of the world. And so, in Genesis chapter 10, in verses one through five, we see the families of the Gentiles. Gentiles is your first blank in your notes. So of these 70 different families that are listed in Genesis chapter 10, uh, these nations come from these families, from the sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Uh, It's very interesting that Noah's family numbers 70 whenever he enters into Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world, right? Egypt is a type of the world. And so he's got 70 in his family, and that's just... Amazing to me, the parallel there. So 70 families make up the nations of the world according to your Bible. Verse one says, now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Unto them were sons born after the flood. And then verse two lists the sons of Japheth. Uh, Genesis chapter 10 is full of names. I will let you peruse them and I will not make you listen to me labor through all of them. Uh, It is doable, but... uh, we're gonna, so help us God by his grace, we're gonna cover the whole chapter today. Uh, look, skip down to verse five. By these, by the sons of Japheth, by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands. Notice that interesting phrase, the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands. We'll talk about that more in a bit. Everyone after his tongue, after their family, in their, there it is again, these families in their nations. Okay, so little, little chart to get you started on Noah's family uh, laid out for you there in your notes. Here's the, here's the thing in Genesis chapter 10. The genealogy here is not just the individual descendants of Noah, but it's listing here in Genesis chapter 10 what is the foundation of the nations. And many of the names listed here end up We find in our Bible, they end up being tribes or nations named after these individuals. You will see them show up again in scripture. Now, the thing that I want you to pay attention to is uh, is just the contrast. Notice the difference, right? The biblical record of all human civilizations contrasted with the record of Abraham, Father Abraham, the forebearer of the nation of Israel. Notice the difference in how much Bible page real estate they each take. The origin story of all the nations of the earth takes just one chapter in your Bible, right here in Genesis chapter 10, but Abram's family, which is Israel's origin story, 
takes up over, over 39 chapters. Why is that? It just doesn't sound fair, does it? Why does Abraham get all this playtime? Well, you know, it's because of Abraham's life, right? Abraham's life, which is covered by 14 chapters in Genesis, it counts for far more than all the other nations combined. Why? Well, because Abraham's family is going to produce, right? Abraham's family is chosen to produce Christ. So it's a big deal. It takes a lot of time in your Bible to explain it. So verses two through five list the sons of Japheth, and they show how his descendants are those who settled the areas extending from Central Asia into Northern Europe and the British Isles. Uh, Northern, Western Europe, these are the descendants of Japheth. Then in verses six through 20, we have the sons of Ham listed. Ham's name means hot, as in heat, not like, you know, he's dripping. Uh, that's not, Ham means hot. Uh, he, he, he's, he's, in a, he's in the heat area, okay? I don't know if, if that came after his descendants settle where they settle, but, but it's from northern Africa to Arabia. These are the descendants of Noah who can take the heat. Now, there are a few descendants that we need to note. Cush is a descendant of Ham, and he is identified with the Ethiopian race of people. Historian Josephus says that Ethiopia is Cush, uh, historically, it's been called Cush. Uh, Mizraim is identified with Egypt. Egypt is called the land of Ham. Do they still call it the land of Ham? Egypt, historically, it's called the land of Ham uh, through Mizraim. And then, uh, you know, I, I found an interesting quote. I don't actually know if this is true. I don't have a way to verify it, but uh, I, I, I found this, so I thought I'd throw it out. Uh, in Haley's Bible Handbook, uh, it is said that Ham himself may have led the migration to Egypt. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. K-H-E-N, Ken, the Egyptian god Ken, is it Ken? Yeah, the Egyptian god Ken was the Egyptian equivalent of the Hebrew word Ham. So uh, check with Dr. Wagi for more information on that. He can, he can fill you in. And then Phut is identified with Libya. And then Canaan's children, remember Canaan got the curse in Genesis chapter nine. Canaan's children settle in the land of Canaan, Sidon to Gaza, Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, man, when the Jewish people come out of captivity, Canaan is filling that curse, right? God gave that land to the Jewish people later on in Bible history. But there's one descendant that we gotta pay attention to. There is one descendant of particular note. And so let's talk about the builder of Babel. Uh, we'll spend some time on that next in Genesis chapter 11. Cush uh, begat, verse eight, look at verse eight. Cush begat Nimrod. He began, this is an interesting phrase, okay? He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. We'll talk about that in just a second. Why is he called uh, a mighty one in the earth and a mighty hunter before the Lord? And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So let's just clear off a spot and talk to everybody about not being a Nimrod. Don't be a Nimrod. Have you ever, has anybody ever called you a Nimrod before? Uh, what a Nimrod, okay, so, so well, it's a big insult. 
And uh, let's look at why. Nimrod is a type of antichrist, okay? He is of his father, the devil, and so he's the father. Nimrod is the father of all false religion. Nimrod, type of antichrist, father of all false religion. That's your blanks. It's interesting that he's the 13th from Adam, and it's in Revelation chapter 13 that we see the antichrist revealed, and throughout your Bible, you'll see little clues of 13 connected to Antichrist. It's, it's a weak illustration, but, but you can't deny it's there. Nimrod is represented in the heavens by the constellation Orion. Um, uh, check out your, your Orion mythology, and it lines up with Nimrod's history. Nimrod, the name Re- Nimrod means rebel, but it can also mean panther. A panther is a good hunter, isn't he? Um, most of them are, when they're not, that's when they go back to the ground, I guess, but Nimrod, hunter, panther, panther, rebel. So he's the founder of the first kingdom mentioned in your Bible, the beginning of his kingdom is called what? Babel. So he is the founder of the first kingdom in the Bible, and what we will find out in, in Genesis chapter 11 is he is the world's first one world, right? Uh, total global dictator. Again, he's going to be a perfect type of antichrist. So his kingdom, the beginning, verse 10 says his kingdom, he's not building God's kingdom. God is building his kingdom. You remember what God said in Genesis chapter nine, God told Noah and his sons to what? Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to build God's kingdom. What we'll see in Genesis chapter 11 is is he wants to keep the families of the earth on the plain of Shinar where he can make his own way to heaven, make a name for himself. Forget the name of God. He has to be magnified and lifted up on high. Uh, So it's not God's kingdom. It's his kingdom. So Nimrod is consumed with power and kingdoms. and, And the Bible says in verse nine, or verse eight, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. That word mighty, okay, he didn't start this way, but something happened in his life that changed him. He began to be a mighty one, okay, that mighty one that's in the earth. That's the same word, gibber, or gibberum, that's used in Genesis chapter six and verse four to describe the offspring of the celestial cohabitating with the terrestrial. They were Gibor, they were Gibberon, they were Nephilim, they were the mighty ones. You're tracking with me, do you see the similarity? Nimrod wanted something for himself that was on earth on the other side of the flood. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. There were giants, Genesis 6, 4, in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became Nephilim, Giborim, Gibor, right, mighty ones. The same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. The same became demigods, half-breeds, halflings. I'm trying to think Percy Jackson and the... I forget, there's, there's a whole series of, how many read the Percy Jackson? Maybe you just watched the movies, okay. Uh, the same became Percy Jackson. Well, this is what we're gonna, we're gonna get insight. We don't have all the details, but there are glimpses. This is what Nimrod wants for himself. And this is foundational to all, every modern day or every historical pagan mystery religion 
at the center of it is the idea that man himself can be deified. If he does the right things, if he goes through the correct rites, if he, is, if he goes from being an initiate to an adept and his deeds are enough, okay, just study your mythologies. The men who bring it, uh, they, 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 they bring it to win it, right? Many of these are elevated to the status of the gods. And so this is the heart of mystery religion, that man himself can be deified. He can become a god in and of himself. Uh, in, in, you know, a very common element of this that I think most people would understand is the idea in the Catholic Church that some believers can be elevated to the point of saints. They can be, they can be canonized as saints themselves and then you can pray to them as gods. Everybody's familiar with that concept, right? Uh, this is, this goes all the way back to a, Bibl- a, a you know, what we're finding in the Bible a Babylonian mystery religion idea that a man can become a god outside of submission to, outside of, 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 of humility before the living God. There is only one God, right? There's only one. His name is Jehovah, it's Jesus. His name is not you, okay? And that will forever be the case. But, you know, the, the, the deist says, no, no, not so fast. We can be elevated. So deist practitioners of Babylonian mystery religion, they believe that man can become a god all without submission to Christ. So this is why in your, in your Western Civ class, you, if you were paying attention, you would have picked up on how the, the pharaohs, the Caesars, right, the ancient rulers believed that they became, they were canonized as, they were enthroned as gods among men and they should be worshiped as gods. You worship, you worship Pharaoh as a god or, or you found out the hard way that he had complete and total control over your life and nothing has changed today. Uh, you know, it, it's gotten, it's, all, it's still there in mystery religion, okay? So in the Mormon faith, for example, again, roots in Babylonian mystery religion, uh, you be a good enough person, you be awesome enough and, and you go from an initiate in their religion to being an adept uh, you'll get your own planet, you'll get, to, you'll get to populate it with celestial sex, and man, it's crazy. Most of it, though, in terms of the groundswell of this idea, it's in this, it's in this arena of transhumanism. It's gotten nerdy in the last days. Uh, it, it got white and nerdy. Greg, Greg, Greg Kurzweil, uh, the, the Kurzweil piano, right? He absolutely is convinced that we are on the cusp of man being able to live forever. Ray wants to eat enough vitamins and take in enough nutrients to live just long enough so that he can be downloaded into some computer construct and and he he thinks it'll be him, right? He can ascend through what's known as this point in, in, in the near future of human history where the computing power is logarithmically growing. It's, it's, it's massive enough where, the, where the, the, the scientific understanding of the human genome and the ability to unlock its secrets is big enough and the capacity is large enough that man can live forever, know everything, do anything, and he does it himself. You know, the idea of eternal life without submission to the Lord Jesus Christ is particularly attractive to transhumanists, to deists. It's a mystery religion view. Uh, we have, we've had this in our nation. <laughs> this is a bummer for people to see, but here it is. Uh, we've had this in our nation from inception. 
I want to talk to you about the apotheosis of George Washington. Okay, George Washington, there's, there's a lot of debate about him, and, and I'll just tell you, I don't, I don't know everything about George Washington, but uh, he was a deist, and uh, his pastor said that. His pastor said he was a deist. A, a deist, okay, so just quick review. A deist, here's the heart of mystery religion. There is a creator, and he is massive and he's awesome, but he, he's so big, he's so vast. Uh, yeah, he's a creator, okay? He's so big, you'll never actually have a, an actual relationship with him. The difference, the quantitative difference between you and the creator is that difference between you and the bacterium in your gut tract. You're not gonna have a relationship with the bacteria. You, you, you know about them conceptually. You know that they're there. But you don't have an intimate, personal relationship with each of the trillions, the billions and the trillions of bacterium that's in your gut. Like you don't just come down and say, hey George, how's it going in there? You processing my carbs correctly? You know, just, that doesn't happen. So also in creation, their, their idea is, is, yeah, you can't know him, but there are these sons of God these celestial beings, these deities that you can entreat, that you can have a relationship with, and uh, you know, curry their favor, and it'll be good for you. You can go and grow, and it'll be good for you on planet Earth. That's the basic idea of mystery religion. Okay, so this is everywhere. Uh, you'll see it in the Catholic Church. This is St. Peter's Basilica. We're looking at it from the, from the, the temple. Uh, from the, 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 the facility itself, and you can kind of see the legs coming out in the middle, there's this obsoliscan. And so it's, it represents a phallus, is, is really what it represents historically. Uh, so here it is, St. Peter's Basilica, the, the obsolisk before the facility, before the, the phallus in front of the womb. Uh, you'll see that uh, at the Egyptian pyramids, there was an obsolisk before the the Great Pyramid, same concept, phallus and womb. The idea is that something great can be birthed into this world. Something great can be birthed into being. Well, in terms of Washington, you have the same thing. This is the Washington Monument. Again, another great obsolisk. It's actually, we'll see in a second, it's the biggest one in the world because George's has to be the biggest. And, and there it is before the Capitol building. So it's phallus and womb. Um, there's, a, there's a better perspective of the distances involved. So the Washington Monument, it's made of marble granite and blue stone. It's the world's tallest stone structure and the world's tallest obelisk, standing 555 feet, five and a half, or five and one-eighth inches, okay? So there's taller monuments, but they're not all stone, they're not true obsolisk, okay? So uh, this is the Washington Monument, and it stands before the Capitol building. Uh, here's the Capitol building, and on the roof of the Capitol building, in the dome, there's a famous painting, it's called The Apotheosis of George Washington. So it's the apotheosis of, it's the ascension of George Washington. It's his elevation to the gods. That's what this painting represents. And so, you know, you walk into the Capitol building and if it's the apotheosis of George Washington, you'd think he'd be hanging out with Jehovah, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, right? Maybe some 
angels in the background saying, hey, welcome to heaven, George, you know, to have, have the angels in the background singing the hallelujah chorus. No, that's not who's up there. Uh, you can stand all day <laughs> under the dome of the Washington, uh, of the Capitol building and, and look at the apotheosis of George Washington and you're not gonna find Jesus in that painting. Who's there? Well, you know, you've got the God of war, Columbia, up there, the God of science, the God uh, Neptune, Mercury, Vulcan, Vulcan, uh, not just a character in Star Trek. No, or a planet, I think it's the planet Vulcan. No, it's the, it's, it's the god of fire and forge. And then Ceres, uh, the Roman goddess of art. You know, these, are, these are the types of people that, that George Washington is hanging out with. Why? Remember, Washington Monument before phallus before a womb, the Capitol building. This place was built by Deus, Freemasons, adherence to mystery religion. The idea is you do something great, right? Your works are sufficient. You can, I mean, when the stars are in alignment, uh, you can go through the rites, and a man can be birthed as a god. That's the basic idea. Um, So that's who we're dealing with whenever we're talking about Nimrod. He doesn't care about the creator. He wants to elevate to the level, right? He wants to be part of the family of these gods that wrecked everything back in Genesis chapter six on the other side of the flood. He's obsessed with this. The Bible says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, We know he is a hunter of men and we'll see this clearly in the next chapter. He's a hunter of souls. Uh, Adam Clark said, the word that's rendered hunter here also signifies prey. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's applied in the scriptures to the hunting of men by persecution, oppression, and tyranny. The Jewish Talmud says that Nimrod was a hunter of souls. The Jewish Targum says he was mighty in hunting or in prey and in sin before God, for he was a hunter of the children of men in their languages. And he said unto them, depart from the religion of Shem and cleave to the institutes of Nimrod. Shem's trying to tell you you can have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's off his beam, man. He doesn't understand anything. Come over and I'll show you how to be a God without God. You don't have to submit to that. You can be like the Titans on the other side of the flood. He, 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 he was preaching against a relationship with Christ. The Targum of Rabbi Jonathan ben Uziel said, from the foundation of the world, none was ever found like Nimrod, powerful in hunting and in rebellions against the Lord. So there it is, that, that phrase, he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. Before the Lord is used in the sense of in the Lord's face. He's pitching a hissy fit. He's throwing a temper tantrum. I will not submit to you. I will go away that's right in my own eyes. And his kingdom, we will see, comes to nothing. But in the face of the Lord, the hunter before the Lord, this is a phrase of rebellion. Why? Because Nimrod is building his kingdom. He's building Babel, not the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not obeying Genesis 9-1. He's not helping The descendants of Noah obey their creator in being fruitful, multiplying, and scattering across the face of the earth to replenish it. No, he's very much like Satan in Job chapter one. Let's bring up that reference. Satan's attitude is, no, this planet, this earth is mine. I'm not going to to be a steward in it for the sake of the Lord. 
Job chapter one verse six says, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from going, watch this now, from going to and fro in the earth, from walking up and down in it. Okay, he's saying, I am, I am, I am exercising, I've just been exercising my ownership of the planet that you created and put Adam in charge of. In other words, he's, he's, he's throwing it in the Lord's face that in you, if you've been with us since Genesis chapter one, verse one, you understand before Lucifer's fall, he was the chief steward of God's creation. And we looked at this principle of dispensational theology when we started. In every phase of biblical history, what we see according to Luke's gospel is there is a rich man, he has a chief steward, and the way the cycle goes is the chief steward fails in his stewardship, he's basically fired, he's judged, he has to give an account, there's a reckoning, a day of reckoning that takes place, and then that stewardship is given to another. Well, in Satan's case, Genesis 1-1, everything's hunky-dory until the day that he got the, 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 the Ezekiel 14 mindset, I will be like the most high, everything that belongs to God alone, I want that for myself. Okay, so iniquity was found in him, he's corrupt. The spirit of antichrist is manifest in him. And so, you know, what we saw as we studied the scriptures is that, that, that Satan was removed from that position of authority. Ezekiel chapter 28 said he walked in the Garden of Eden, right? He was removed from his post on earth and then from the dirt of Eden, or from the dirt of planet earth, God makes a man and puts him in Eden Right, I mean literally dirt gets Satan's old job. And so that's why it's on like Donkey Kong. Uh, Satan absolutely can't, hand, he's not, oh man, I'm just gonna love, it. Uh, you know, it was my bad, I messed up. Uh, I hope Adam does a better, no, I will destroy him. That's Satan's heart. I will destroy him and so Genesis three, he lays the perfect trap for Adam and, and so now, according to 2 Corinthians chapter four, now Satan is the god of this world. Which world? This present fallen world. So what is he doing? Satan is in God's face. He comes in among the sons of God in Job chapter one. And the Lord said unto Satan, whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth, from walking up and down in it. You remember, that's what God told Abraham to do when he gave him the promised land. Walk in what you own. Walk the length, the breadth of it. Walk the totality of it. Satan is basically saying to Jesus, in your face. Now, next in Job 1, verses eight through 12, we see this wicked lion hunting God's man, just like he hunted Adam. The Lord said unto Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? So, I mean, Satan's walking up and down in the earth, but, but he couldn't do what he wanted in anything that Job owned. He's a pretty sad owner of a fallen world, isn't he? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land, but put forth thy hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. This is the spirit of Nimrod. He's in God's face. He's a hunter of men. 
just like, just like Satan hunted down Adam and then Job after him, and just like that roaring lion today, that roaring lion is seeking whom he may devour. He is a hunter of souls. Well, this was Nimrod. He's building his kingdom, it's called Babel, and what we will see is that Babel means gate of God. Uh, God will make it mean confusion before it's all said and done, but it's gate of God. So Nimrod is of his father the devil, and the lusts of his father he will do. So he's got an Isaiah 14 heart. I will be like the most high. He's got a John 8, 44 spiritual pedigree. He's of his father the devil. And just like Satan was a murderer from the beginning, Nimrod is a hunter of the souls of men. He will, it's in his heart to build this tower whose top will reach to heaven. He's gonna get to the place of God all without God, without submission to him. He will be like the most high. You know, a Nimrod does what a Nimrod does. That's what a Nimrod does. Okay, so this is the beginning of his kingdom. It still exists today. You will not find any end to the kingdom of Babel, of Babylon, anywhere in your Bible until you get to the end and you see the destruction of Babylon. So there's no end listed yet. And his kingdom, we'll see this in chapter 11, is in the land of Shinar and you will identify that historically with the ancient Sumerian Empire. And so with that, for your reference, it's there in your notes, you can check that out. We give you reference material on, on just what the world says about the, the Nimrod myth, and so that's for you there in your notes. Okay, point number three, here at the end of Genesis chapter 10, the, what we find now is that the Genesis 3.15 prophecy zeroes in on Shem's family, particularly a man named Eber. So let's talk about the history of the Hebrews. The history of the Hebrews. Verses 20 through 32 list the sons of Shem. Let's pick it up in verse 21. Unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder, even to him were children born. Verse 25, so we're listing the children now, and, and then Eber is one of these children, and unto Eber were born two sons, verse 25. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Okay, and then let's, they're listing the family, and then we get down to verse 32, and the Bible says, these are the families of the sons of Noah, after the generations, here it is again, in their nations. These are the people groups of the planet. In their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Okay, so historically we know that the Oriental peoples come from Shem. The Hebrew people come from Shem. Verse 21 says Shem is the father of the children of Eber. So he's representative of the entire group of people, the Hebrew people. Eber, that's where we get the name Hebrew from. Hebrew just means a descendant of Eber. That's what a Hebrew is. Peleg, look at him. Okay, Peleg is a peculiar outfit. Uh, he, I mean, in his days, the Bible says the earth was divided. Verse 25, unto Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days, was the earth divided. Okay, I want you to just consider two points on this. The earth is divided, you can see it on a map. You can see the people groups divided, the nation states divided. Now, now Peleg, in his days, was the earth divided. That's not necessarily a mandate. That's not necessarily evidence for the floating continents theory. 
because the clear meaning of the division of the earth is found in the text in verse 32, right? Uh, We just read that. In his days was the earth divided. What division? Well, read verse 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah after the generations and their nations. By these were the nations, there it is, divided in the earth after the flood. And we're gonna find out it's not just after the flood, but it's also after the confusion at Babylon. They weren't divided until after God comes down and confounds the languages. So Hebrew was alive at this point. This is the point of, Pe- or I'm sorry, Ab- Eber, or mm, Peleg. Oh, there we go, I got it. Okay, Peleg, uh, he's named for this event. In his days, right, the earth is divided. First Chronicles chapter one, verse 19 says the same. Unto Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg because in his days the earth was divided. Peleg, the name means division. It means division. In other words, to split or to divide. And that is connected to a couple root words. Uh, one is a rill, a rill. A rill is a small channel of water like an irrigation ditch or a river or even a stream and it can be used in a body of water, but it's also connected to the word earthquake, right? A shaking, Um, everything shaking. And so that's just kind of interesting. How did God divide the nations? I mean, they're dividing into camps. Uh, Is this when the earth's continents were divided? I don't know, there are a couple theories. Uh, There are problems with both theories. These just seem like the most interesting to me and and I found video for them and so I'll just show them to you. Uh, Let's go ahead and bring up the first one. This would be the idea of Pangaea. Um, You know, this is is based on the continental drift theory. The tectonic, the continental plates are drifting, they're moving apart. And uh, and this, this explanation takes millions, hundreds of millions of years to explain the transition from Pangaea to the, the map that we know and understand today, okay? Because what scientists think is happening is that the continents are drifting uh, apart at the speed of like one and a half to two and a half centimeters per year. So it takes a long time to get the world that we know now. This is called continental drift theory. Pangaea to the continents that we know today. Okay, so that's one theory. Um, There's a lot of compelling evidence for this. There are a lot of arguments for this. Uh, God can make the earth look however he wants it to look in the moment he wants it to look that way. That would be my official biblical position. If you want me to get more technical than that, sorry, uh, not my monkey, not my zoo. Go find crazy somewhere else. The other one, is the expanding earth theory. So there you have Pangaea, or all the continents of the earth together. So they're spreading. The idea of the expanding earth theory was is that the earth that we now know uh, started out uh, roughly one-third the size of the current planet. All the mass is there, but, but you know, uh, maybe some additions you know, with comets and icebergs crashing into the planet over the years. But, but the idea is as the earth expands, uh, then you've got the continents drifting, and so the, that gives us the, the, the idea of the map that we understand today. Expanding Earth theory, still a lot of debate, a lot of problems with that theory, and if, you know, my position would be, if that's how God wanted to, you know, separate the families and then make sure they stayed separated, he could have done that. Um, at the end of all of it, God did what he wanted to to get the results of the nations being divided. The bigger question is why? Why was the earth divided? Well, these families we just saw are growing into nations. 
And God's command for how they do it is found in Genesis chapter nine, verses one and two. They're to be fruitful, multiply, and they are to replenish the earth. But something is happening. Okay, so let's back up. Now let's get the big picture. Okay, what is happening spiritually on planet earth? Uh, Well, we're in our third dispensation, whether we realize it or not. Okay, so we saw pre pre-human biblical history. We saw the, the celestial family of God, the kingdom of God in Genesis 1.1. We saw Adam operating in the age of innocence. He did not know sin. Whenever he rebelled against the word of God, his eyes were opened, and now he knew, right? He, he understood the, naked, the nakedness of his sin before God. And this is why he's hiding in the garden. So God has to make provision for that to cover the nakedness of his sin in Genesis chapter three. And from there, we saw that man was operating under the dispensation of consciousness. You know, again, a dispensation is just how God dispenses, right, his relationship, his grace to man. In the garden, it's innocence. They're they're walking in the cool of the garden. Uh, in the cool of the day, right? They have, a, they have a daily relationship that's ruptured through sin. How, how does man relate to God now? How, how is he functioning as a steward over God's kingdom now? Well, God reveals it when he's dealing with Cain. Just do what's right and it'll be well. This is the age of conscience. Well, now, with Noah on the other side of the flood, we're entering into a stage of human government. The kingdoms of the earth begin to arise. And so this is the dispensation, this third dispensation of human government. It's still supposed to replenish the earth. They still have the same commission that God gave to Adam to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, Genesis 9, 1 and 2. But over several generations, right, this should be happening, the earth should be replenishing, but some antichrist, Nimrod, oh yeah, that's his name, some, some, the Nimrod has got his thumb on Noah's descendants and he's not letting them obey God, right? They refuse to leave the plain of Shinar. That's what we'll see next time. So Satan, right, he's gendering rebellion against God in this age of human biblical history. So God has to judge that sin at Babel by confusing, confounding the languages of the people and forcing them to scatter abroad. We'll see that in Genesis 11, verses seven through nine. And that's kind of how it works. You'll see that pattern in scripture. Whenever we refuse to obey God, God has to kind of put us over his proverbial knee and you know, educate us a little bit. You know, in Acts chapter one, verse eight, what's the commission? Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth with sons of God who love and worship me. Isn't that what we see in Acts 1.8? But you shall receive power, when? After that, after you receive the Holy Ghost and ye shall be witnesses unto me. It starts in Jerusalem, Judea, from there, Samaria, and then what? The earth, the uttermost. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. Well, okay, so it's going great. Judea, Jerusalem and Judea are getting the gospel. I mean, right off the bat, they built a mega church. It's probably the biggest church in the history of Christianity. They're blowing and going, and they're not going to Samaria. They're not going to the uttermost. And so what happens? Well, they didn't obey Acts 1-8, so they had to endure Acts 8-1. That's what had to happen. There was a persecution that took place that scattered the church in Jerusalem over the face of the civilized world. And that's how 
the church ended up fulfilling the Great Commission, at least in her beginning. We either send or we scatter. This is why, so help us God by his grace, we're gonna be a a soul winning, disciple making, training and equipping, sending church. Why, because I I don't want God to scatter us. I want God to send us. It's better to be sent uh, then straightened out. Amen? Okay, that was, that was okay. A little weak, but I think you get it. So God's dividing humanity in order to make them fulfill the commission given to their father Noah. That's what's happening. And this is in contrast with the fruit of Nimrod's kingdom. He isn't about building God's kingdom. He's about building his Right, he, 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 we're gonna see it, it's just in the next chapter, we're gonna lay it all out. It, it's demonic, it's wicked. And it's amazing to me, the insatiable desire of human, uh, of humanity, of, of, of people, right, to be unified under a God among men, under an antichrist. It's interesting, what happened in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 will happen again, humanity, lost humanity will be unified under a Nimrod. Uh, he, will, he will ascend, he'll, he'll start out as a man, but events will transpire. You can read about those in Revelation chapter 13. Events will transpire that he will then proclaim himself the Messiah, uh, the, the God of scriptures, and he will walk into the temple, the Jewish temple, and he will desecrate it. It's called the abomination of desolations. Uh, what happened in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, it's gonna happen again, and lost man will eat it up, hook, line, and seeker. Uh, the deists today are working for the manifestation. They wanna get back to Atlantis, the, the, the time before the flood, the, the age of Atlantis where the gods ruled among men. Uh, they, they call it the golden age of civilization, and they're trusting that one of these mighty ones, these gibberim, can be birthed into humanity. They have rights, some of them are just nasty, okay? They have rights that, that, that are designed to produce this. You'll see it in Wiccan, uh, the Wiccan religions, uh, Satanism. The idea is that a God can be produced to, you know, one to rule them all. So there it is, obnoxious. Okay, what's God doing? Check out Deuteronomy 32. Here's what God's doing. In the middle of all of this rebellion, God reveals his heart in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse seven. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father and he will show thee. Thy elders, ask them. They will tell thee. When the Most High divided the nations, their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. See, God is working to divide the nation so he can separate and get down to the Hebrews. And from there to Adam, or from there to Abraham, and from there to Isaac, Jacob, from there to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. God is working to produce the skull crusher, okay? That's what God is doing. He's narrowing the Genesis 3.15 prophecy down to the Hebrew people, and he wants them to be able to thrive without interference from these other mystery religion adherents. That's what God's doing. But both man and the devil 
work against the plan of God by bringing the nations, by bringing everyone together against God. That's the spirit, that's the course of this wicked, fallen, present world. That's what the children of wrath, you know, people who are by nature children of wrath, this is what we do. Both the devil and man work to bring all together, to bring all unified against God, against as your last, uh, your last blank. This work, this is the spirit and the kingdom of Antichrist. And the Apostle John tells us, even 2,000 years ago, it's already at work in this world. First John chapter four, verse three says, every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, where have ye heard that it should come, and even now, is al- and even now already is it in the world. It's already working in the world. Why could he say that? Well, he read Genesis chapters 10 and 11. He knew the story. It's always been at work. It's been at work since the spirit was birthed in Satan's heart in Isaiah 14, uh, in that time of perfection of Genesis 1-1. So I want you to think about it. Whether you realize it or not, the way you live your life, how you live your life, it's building one of two kingdoms. Okay, let me break it down. There are only two families, right? There's God's family, spiritual families. There's God's family and the the devil's family. And therefore, there are only two kingdoms. There is God's kingdom and there is Satan's kingdom. So your life is helping to build one of those kingdoms. You say, man, I'm just working my job, I live in my house, I pay my taxes, leave me alone, man, okay. No, spiritually, your life is producing something and it's either serving into and it's propping up, it's increasing, it's helping the kingdom of darkness or it's helping the kingdom of light. And I just ask, would you do a personal inventory this morning and just ask yourself, which kingdom is my life building? Am I building for a world that ultimately is just gonna burn? Have you ever read 2 Peter chapter three? We've referenced it several times already in our study in Genesis. This world, this present world, will go down in fire. You know, every time I talk about building something in this earth, in this life, and I get the counsel, advice from my dad, you know, I'm thinking about building a, well, what are you gonna do that for, man? It's all gonna burn. It's all gonna burn anyway. Why would you waste your money on that? It's all gonna burn. I'm like, well, I know, but I kinda live here, and I want it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but he's, he's got the right point. I mean, it's the, that's the, thank God for Mike Miles. It's the right point. Um, what, what is your life, what kingdom is your life building? Are you building for coming destruction? Guess what, that tower at Babel, nobody's getting to heaven through it. Uh, that came to nothing. Well, that's how the kingdoms of this world work. So are you building for this world or are you a, a stranger and a pilgrim? Are you functioning as an ambassador for Christ? Second Corinthians five tells you that your old life has passed away. Your old life in this world, it's gone. You're a new creature in Christ. That's who you are. God is your father, Christ is your king. And you are his subject. Are you loyal? Are you functioning as an ambassador of Christ? An ambassador for Christ? Or is your life falling out anti-Christ? Because if you're not building Christ's kingdom, Whose kingdom are you building? Are you building disciples or are you building a mess? Are you training up your children in the way that they should go or are you just letting them run wild? 
Somebody's discipling your kids, and if it's not you, guess who? Satan has somebody at work in the life and the heart of your child. What is your life building? Is it, is it functioning? Is it serving the being fruitful, the multiplying and the replenishing of God's kingdom? Or is it just going through the motions? You're living your life in this world, getting along with the course of this wicked, wicked, wicked present, evil world. Somehow if you combine wicked, present, evil, you get wicked. Somebody write that down, it's new slang. This wicked world. Um, only you can answer that. I'd like us to bow our heads and I'd like us to humble ourselves right now. And I just ask nobody be moving around, okay? Um, somebody lead to worship, but, but that's it, okay? If you'll bow your head and if you'll humble yourself before the Lord, okay? If you'll, if sometimes it helps to close your eyes. But I'm asking, would you bow and would you look into your heart and just examine it? What is your life building? Does your life exist to further the kingdoms of this world? Or does your life exist to serve into the kingdom of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Are you a part of God's mission for your life? Are you doing, are you, or are you in God's face? Are you going a way that's right in your own eyes? Is there anyone that would say, Pastor, please, would you pray for me? Because I'm pretty sure I don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know that I even have a relationship with God. How would I build his kingdom when I don't know God? Would you please pray for me? I need to be saved. Can I see your hands? Is there anyone like that in this service? I don't know that I'm saved. I don't know that I'm born again. Pastor, please pray for me. Let me see, let me see your hands. In a room this big with this many people, I know there are some here that do not know God and I wanna pray for you. Is there anyone? Please pray for me. Are there any that would say, Pastor, please pray for me because my life isn't serving into Christ's kingdom. Uh, I attend a service on Sunday. <laughs> you know, I'll attend church every once in a while, but my life isn't building Christ's kingdom. Please pray for me. That's gotta end today. I gotta change directions. Let me see your hands. Yep, 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 okay, okay, okay. Anybody else? Please pray for me. I, today needs to be a day of repentance for me. I need to get accountable I need to make sure that I'm doing the things that fall out to ensure that my life is building Christ's kingdom. For some of you, okay, yeah. For some of you, that's gonna mean just plugging into discipleship. You gotta, you gotta know something before you can actually help, right? So that some of you need to go to the lobby and sign up for discipleship. Others of you, um, you could commit to the, just supporting the mission trips that we have. Uh, we've got a number of, of easels up here on the stage. Uh, they're under the title of Pray, Prepare, Give, Go. And you could support one of those trips. Maybe you're supposed to be a part of one of those trips. Maybe you, you just need to commit to praying for one of these trips. Maybe you could give financially uh, in order to help uh, others go, in, other, in order to help the work. Uh, you know, There's a lot of ways that you can support this church being fruitful multiplying and replenishing the earth. Others of you today just needs to be a day of repentance and you need to quit playing at being a Christian. You need to quit, play, you, you need to quit with, the, with the show, with the form of godliness without the reality of God's lordship in your life. 
So I'm gonna pray for you and then this is critical. This is your part of the service. This is your time to respond. I would ask that every Christian be praying. Pray that God would have his way in every heart and every life. Be full of faith, okay? At the end of the service, don't just check out and wait so that you can be the first one in line to go get a donut downstairs, okay? Uh, don't be an Esau. Say no to your belly God. Take just five minutes here and pray fervently that God would have his way with every heart. Pray in faith, okay? This, there's a spiritual work that needs to take place. So I want every member as a minister engaged right now. If you're here and you're saying, my life is not where it needs to be before the Lord, that has to change today. I'm gonna pray for you and then I want you to do something about it. We'll have some leaders come down front uh, who are here to pray with you, to counsel with you, to help you take a next step. If it's discipleship, go to the discipleship counter in the lobby, get signed up, all right? Get on the path to growth. Some of you, you just need to pull out your phone and enroll in LFBI. You need to, you've been discipled, you need to start making disciples. So Father, you see us, you see our hearts, you see our hands, you see where we're at. And Lord, I wanna ask that, just like we said, that Lord, you would have your way you're the creator, we're creation. You're God, we're, we're not. Lord, deliver us from the idea that we can stand before you in your face and think we can go away that's right in our own eyes. God, help us to humble ourselves before you. God, we need you so desperately. Help us to see it. Help us to see that without you we can do nothing. Lord, help us to see how, how critical it is that we acknowledge you in all of our ways because God, you have to direct our paths. We don't wanna walk in this world apart from walking in the light of your word by the leading of your spirit, knowing that, that what we're doing is building your kingdom. And so for everyone that raised their hand, Lord, I pray that today would not just be a day of acknowledgement, but it'd be a day of submission. Lord, you're worthy. You're worth being right with. You're worthy of our submission to your word. And so God, please pour out your spirit on us in conviction, have your way with every heart, every life for your glory, but also for our good. We want when that day of reckoning comes for us and we have to give an account for how we served you. Lord, I desperately want it to be a day of rejoicing for everyone in this room. And I ask this now in Jesus' name, amen.